inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. Outlook. Radio Western. Good morning, Brian. How is it? How's it going for you? Oh, pretty good. How are you doing today, Care? Good. Thanks for tuning in, everybody, on 94.9 Radio Western this morning, or as a podcast. Um, we have a guest today, so that's exciting. Um, I did want to mention quick first that uh, January is Braille Literacy Month. And we've been talking about some events all month, and uh, there's one more coming up I just wanted to quickly mention for anybody listening. On Thursday, January 27th, it's called Refreshing and Rethinking Braille Awareness, Presentation with a Focus on Equity and Accessibility. And again, there, if you want to attend that, you can go to nels.ca, N-N-E-L-S dot C-A, and you'll find more information there. So, rounding out Braille Literacy Month. But on to our guest, Brian. Yes, excited. Excited about this one. We have another, we have another book to talk about today. So this is, mm. this is exciting. Mm-hmm. So our guest today is Ruth Vallis, and her book is Love is Blind. Hello, Ruth, and welcome to Outlook. Thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm grateful to be here. Yes, glad to have you. Yes, yeah, so glad to have you, and congrats on the book. Uh, we've both read it, and it's... Uh, Quite, quite, the, quite the story, quite the life story that we'll get into today. But I wanted to start with, you said thanks for inviting you on, but it was you actually I, who originally reached out. So I was just kind of curious, how did, you, how did you come across Outlook in the first place? Because we're, you know, we're always looking for new guests and doing our research all the time, but it's so nice for a change sometimes when somebody out of the blue just reaches out and says, hey, I have this, this book, would, would you be interested in having me on your show? So I... I, I fell upon you just uh, looking up someone's name. I was um, searching out somebody else and I noticed that they had an interview on your program. So I listened to it and then I just sort of from there started listening to more things and that's what happened. Great. Yeah. So, yeah. I just fell upon it. <laughs> that's great. And then in the email that you sent us originally too, I wanted to start off by mentioning just quickly before we do get into the book. That um, you said that you were a, a good friend of, of the late Tom Decker. And for our listeners exactly. who may not know, Tom composed the theme for our radio show. He was on our show on one of the very early episodes and in the studio at the time before the pandemic and all this. And uh, he came to my apartment after because he, I wanted to show him and he was interested to see my, my recording setup here. I have a mixing, mixing board and Pro Tools and all of that stuff in my apartment. So we brought him back after and he was a, you know, right down to business. He saw my MIDI keyboard and he's like, oh, bring up some sounds and I'll do a theme for you guys. And I was just, you know, blown away to have a, a theme for our show. And it was, you know, composed by someone else who is blind. And that's what we're all trying to do here is get more blind people involved. So just so cool. And um, so yeah, I was just really kind of curious how you, how you met Tom Decker and how, how you knew him. Well, I've Seem to have always known Tom. I went to the School for the Blind in Brantford, which at that time was called the Ontario School for the Blind, now W. Ross McDonald. And I was there in grade one and two. And Tom was eight years older than me. Okay. Um, so he was, he was, to me, he was like an old man, right? You know, I was six and he was, he was 14. So, you know, I, I, I knew him because everybody seemed to know, know him. And we also shared the same birthday. So that gave us a connection. And um, so I've sort of interacted with him over the years at different events and different things and that he was involved with and so on. And then when I first got a computer and I need to uh, know more about how to use it and so on, I hired him as my computer instructor and he spent an hour with me and he said, I'm not going to teach you anymore. You learn too fast. I can't make any money on someone like you. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but he was always a great friend. He was a very, very good friend and, um, and really such a great advocate for blind people to be engaged and involved in the world and not just 
sitting at home doing nothing. He was really good and he was very willing to help. And the sad thing was I called him on Tuesday, I think it was the 6th of October. And I talked to him and he said, I'd like to be able to read a book. And he was referring to my book, of course. And I said, well, it's not published yet. It's we're working on that, but it's not quite published yet. And he said, can I have an electronic copy? I said, let me think about that, Tom. I'll see if I can send you a, a copy because it's, um, you know, pretty, it's, it's still being finished with the editing and so on. And he said, I said, but I'll, I'll call you back. I'll call you in a couple of days. And that was Tuesday morning. And he became delirious Tuesday afternoon, went into um, uh, hospice care on Wednesday and died on Saturday. So sadly, he never read my book. Um, He wouldn't have, even if I had sent him an electronic copy right there and then, he wouldn't have had the chance. But certainly, it was very supportive and very encouraging. And he was a good friend for me since I was six years old, which will be almost 56 years next in in March. So it's a long time. Wow. Mm -hmm. Just a great guy. And I just wanted to mention that uh, before we get into talking now about your book, Love Love is Blind. Sure. Yes. And it's published by Friesen Press. That's great. I believe I've heard of them. uh, Yeah. They're based in BC. Is that right? That's correct. They're they're in Victoria. That's Mm. correct. And actually they're a subsidiary of, of Friesen, which is the book pressing company. They actually been around for about 140 years. So if you read a copy, if you read a hard copy, ink print copy of something like Harry Potter or uh, Alex Trebek's last book and so on, they've all been pressed by Friesen uh, in in Manitoba. It's very, very well known, but they started a subsidiary, uh, which is in Victoria, and that's who worked with me. Well, very great. Cool. Yeah. Uh, this book is very family-based, of course. Um, so I thought maybe we could start with you just giving us a bit of background, maybe on your parents, because they were sort of your foundation, and uh, then we'll get into talking about you, of course. But uh, anything you would think, want to know about their background uh, before you came along or when you were born? Yeah, sure. Um, My parents were born in Newfoundland. My family has uh, been in Newfoundland for a very, very long time. In fact, one of my great, great, great grandmothers was a um, Mi'kmaq woman. So my family has been in Newfoundland for a very long time. And so uh, my father was a Second World War veteran. He left his little tiny community in Newfoundland to go to war, which would be a very shocking thing because there wasn't even a road into his village when he left. So to go all the way to Europe eventually would be quite shocking. But he spent 33 months marching through the war zone of Europe and he sustained some injuries. He lost much of his hearing and he had uh, PTSD, but we didn't, they didn't diagnose that in those days. They gave it names like shell shock and, and so it wasn't diagnosed uh, or treated for a very, very long time. So he suffered, unfortunately. And my mother was a very strong woman. She was very calm. She was very gentle, but she was very strong. When my mother said yes, it was yes. And when my mother said no, it was no. And there was no changing her mind. And my mother and my father supported each other very much. Whatever one said, the other one supported. And there was no, you couldn't play one off against the other. And I think that's important in a lot of, uh, on a lot of levels, but particularly because of my father's PTSD, I think, you know, kids could perhaps take advantage, but we didn't, we knew better. And uh, we didn't really understand what it was when we were growing up. My father would, you know, be very, very upset and uh, withdrawn to himself. And we, or, you know, and he might start hollering and we, we didn't know why um, and what was going on, but we just understood that was part of him. And um, the interesting thing is writing the book, my brothers, of which I have four, um, had more insight into my father after reading the book. And we as a family were discussing it together, which we'd never done before, never done before. And one brother said, so that's what it was, eh? PTSD, you know? So 
Um, for those who are not familiar, that's post-traumatic stress disorder, which comes up a lot in the media and so on. But 33 months marching through the war zone of Europe as a young man, giving up his youth. Um, it was a big sacrifice. But, uh, but my parents were very devout Christian people. They were very faithful people. And they were very supportive of each other and very determined that I would be an independent person, no matter what that was. They didn't know what that would look like, but they were determined that that would be the case. So um, I think typical of people who live on an island, and Newfoundland, of course, being an island, people are very self-sufficient and very capable. They don't always have the opportunity to go to someone who has expert knowledge in a particular area. So people often have two and three and four skills. Like, you know, I had a, a cousin who was a barber, a farrier, he put horseshoes on horses, and he was an auto mechanic. I mean, one guy had three jobs, and that's very typical in Newfoundland and in a lot of islands. And that need to be self-sufficient, my parents just instilled that in me. They didn't, you know, I'm sorry, you don't, you can't, you can't see, well, there's got to be a way to do things. So let's try to figure it out. So that Newfoundland self-sufficiency was really good for me. Mm-hmm. Of course, you, you grew up in Toronto. I grew up in Toronto, but I grew up in a very Newfoundland family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just all of those experiences growing up that I, that I read about in your book, it really, really connected with me because we're also, uh, Carrie and I are, you know, our family is very close and we're very family oriented. And I think a big part of this is parents believing in their children. And I just, it's, it's obviously every situation is so different and it's, you can't, you can't really truly compare because everyone's upbringing and, and family life is such a different thing. But that is such an important part is having parents believe in you, whether you're blind or not. And I just, I find that that's something that is still difficult today where certain pl- uh, families just don't have that. And so it's, it's, it's tough, but it's, it's refreshing to see um, how, how uh, your parents didn't let the blindness stop you from, from doing what you wanted to do. But I think, Brian, that that is unfortunately typical in a lot of families, and increasingly so. We are wrapping our children in cotton wool or bubble wrap or something quite commonly now. And they're, you know, children are being driven to school. They don't walk to school with their friends. They don't do things that there's not freedom that used to be to fall and scrape your knee and get up and carry on. They're just, we just don't treat children and particularly children who have uh, disabilities. Yes, there, that's, that is an issue. And it's so important to let people, let children experience and try things and they get hurt. Well, Eel, you know, that sort of thing. So I think it's, I, yes, but my mother didn't, you know, I, she didn't want to send me away to a school for the blind or residential school. I was just a little girl of six and she didn't want to do that. But as she said to me, Ruthie, I don't know what will become of you. But at least if you learn to read, you can entertain yourself. And this is, this is the starting point for her was that by me learning to read, then at least I had a very important tool that could lead to who knows what. And of course, for me, it led to a lot of good things. Right. And uh, so you said you have four brothers. Uh, our, our mother also has four brothers and she's the only girl in the family. So there you go. Of- yeah. yeah. Lots of little connections. Yeah, we're related. Yeah, there yeah. you go. So then how were, how were you treated uh, compared to your brothers? Like how was that uh, dynamic when you were young? My parents treated us all the same. We all had the same expectations. There was all the same expectations of chores. We all had chores that we had to do. And, you know, initially when I was quite young, my chores were things that I could do a little more easily than other things. Like I didn't mow the lawn in the beginning where my brothers would be out mowing the lawn or shoveling the snow. And eventually I was given a little shovel to go and help too. But, but, you know, my, my chores started out um, cleaning the bathroom, <laughs> you know, emptying the waste paper baskets, things that they, my parents figured I could do a little more easily than, than other things. And other than say vacuuming, which would be a little more challenging. So 
we all had chores and I had chores and the expectations were there that I would do them, that I would participate in the family on every level, just like my brothers. However, raising a blind child or any child with a quote unquote special needs means there's a certain amount of attention that has to be given that isn't given to children who can see, for instance, because, you know, experiencing the world as a blind person, one experiencing things in a different level of minutia. There's a lot more um, things you don't, you don't know because you don't see the bigger picture visually. You have to learn all the little components individually. So there's more, I think, time required raising a blind child than there is in some ways in raising a child who can see. But, um, but other than that, my parents tried very hard not to allow my brothers to feel that they were not getting a square deal and that they were not getting adequate attention or the same attention that I was getting. So they worked very hard at it. But because of that, you know, my family loved to go fishing and I didn't love to go fishing. Um, you know, I'd sit there with my fishing rod for a while, but that would get kind of boring. And so there were times when the family went fishing on a Saturday, for instance, we'd all pile on the car and go fishing. And I had to go as well. My mother would say, you're a part of this family. And this week, this family's going fishing. So, you know, suck it up, buttercup was kind of the attitude. But there were other times when my mother would take pity on me. And although she enjoyed fishing as much or more than any of them, she would say, well, your brothers and your father are going fishing and we're having a ladies day. And so we'd go and have lunch at the lunch counter at Woolworths or something like that. That was ladies day. And I really loved it because it meant I had her all to myself and my brothers had my father all to himself and everybody was happy. So, you know, things like that happened. Um, but for the most part, they tried very hard to treat us all the same and expect all the same of us all. Yeah. And you have some great descriptions of the day you, uh, one day you do go fishing of, um, the, the smells and the sounds that you noticed, uh, um, on the water. So that, you know, that was a great part of your book. I enjoyed, but, um, you also loved like a lot of active things. You, you wanted to bike ride like your brothers and, and others, you wanted to go skating. Uh, so how, how did that work for you? Um, well, yes, um, my brothers all skated and played a little hockey and I wanted to skate also. And my mother didn't want me going to the local park. Um, two reasons. One is that if the other children didn't know that I was blind, they would, could crash into me. I could get injured. And if the children did know I was blind, then they would curb their activity and they wouldn't be free to have as much fun. That was what she thought. So my second oldest brother, Christopher, and my mother would go out in the winter, scrape all the snow in the backyard to the edges and bank it all up, and then flood the backyard with the hose and go out uh, several times and flood it. And then when it was a nice thickness that could hold the skater's weight, then they would take buckets of boiling water from the kitchen and throw it over it every night for three or four nights until it was absolutely perfectly smooth. And I had the best skating rink in the city. It was attended with no cracks, no bumps. And so I would go out and skate and skate and skate. Although, because I wasn't allowed to go to the park, the park wasn't allowed to come to my rink. And of course, the neighborhood kids would love to just put their skates on and jump on my rink. They wouldn't have far to go. And it was right there. But my mother said, no, that was my place to be able to skate around unimpin in, you know, impaired so that I could be free to have fun. So my younger brother was welcome to come and skate with me, which he did very occasionally, but he really wanted to be with his friends. And my mother said nobody else was allowed on the rink and no hockey sticks, absolutely no hockey sticks allowed on that rink. So, you know, my mother said to me, okay, I'd say, well, I'm all by myself. And she'd say, well, Ruthie, if you want to skate, there's your skating rink. And she had a really very important philosophy, which I, I ascribe to now very much myself. Do not lament the things you cannot do, but find the things you can do and get on and do them. 
And I think this is really important. Too many people spend way too much energy. I I can't, especially in COVID. I can't go see yeah. my friends. I can't do this. I can't do that. Well, my mother would say, you know, that you want to skate. There's your skating rink. There's your skates. Away you go. Um, you know, go and read a book or go and play a musical instrument or put on your radio or, you know, we'll have a game of cards or something. But don't waste energy on what you can't do. It's just not it's not a good way to go through life. And so that that was what, you know, sometimes I had to be reminded. You want to skate? Then go and skate. You want to be with friends and be with friends, but you cannot be with friends and skate at the same time because you could get hurt the same as if you went to the park. So, you know, she did her best. I can tell you, I, like I said, I had a beautiful rink and it was probably about 10 feet wide and 30 feet long. So it was a pretty good rink for a little kid. You'd love yeah, that, had, right, Karen? I would. Yeah. We, we actually yeah. had cousins growing up that always had a, a big skating rink in their yard and Again, they were always playing hockey on it, so I never felt comfortable to go out and use it. But um, we we always skated on this pond, sort of in the field behind our house, mm-hmm. and um, and I, so I always loved. I did love skating, and then I didn't do it for several years, and I'm I've been trying to get back into it recently. Do you do you still skate? Um, <laughs> not not now. I don't have the same opportunity, but I have skated on the Rideau Canal, and you know things like yeah, taking the opportunity. Oh yeah, it's lovely. It's really I love it. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I really want to skate, but I'm not, I've never really been able to do it. And I, you know, I just haven't, I also haven't practiced or really had the, the proper uh, lessons, but it's one of those things that Carrie, you were always a little bit more natural at, and I, I have some balance issues and stuff. I, I guess you do too, in a way, but for skating, you've, you've, you've been able to kind of get back into it. Um, so yeah, I just thought that's really what I, what I think, what I think you need to do, Brian, is you need to have a hockey stick and therefore you don't necessarily play hockey, but if you have the hockey stick on the ice, people will think. Oh, that looks natural. And you'll have it for balance. Hmm, never tried that, I don't think. Yeah, no, right? that's, a, that's a great point. I mean, I've, I've in previous times I've went out like with my with my dad and they'll, he'll skate backwards so that he can hold, I can hold on to him and, and he, can, he yes. can help support me and stuff like that, which it works okay. But after about five minutes, my feet and my, I, also have some, I also have some joint issues with my ankles and stuff. So after about five minutes, it's like, oh, I got to sit down. I got to sit down. But it is fun. It is a lot of fun. And I, I hope it to is. do it more in the sure. future. But also, yeah, the, the, the biking, Carrie, that's another big one that we, we also had a tandem growing up and you actually still have it. I think it's in your garage there uh, back in, in Woodstock, yeah. but it's one of those things too that we did get in. We, we love doing it, but I just, I'd like to start doing it more because it's one of those things being blind sometimes those, those are the areas where, you know, integration, which we're going to get into here in schools. That's one of the things I feel like I missed out on a little bit being integrated was, was the uh, physical education, just getting to an older grades and, and teachers not being as accommodating in, in that area. So you, you were integrated where you didn't go to a school for the blind. That's correct. Neither of us went to, uh, to Brantford at all. We were integrated from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. I, I want to get into that for sure. Uh, Cause you were one of the first to be integrated was, in a I program. The, I was the youngest of, I was the pioneer. I was no Conestoga wagon, just a pioneer. And uh, I was, yes, I was the youngest of the first group of children integrated in Canada. Yeah. But, uh, but the tandem I love, I love cycling and I've done a ton of it, but the, the problem is I am blind because of what is called a mixed connective tissue disorder. I have a rheumatological disease like rheumatoid arthritis and so cycling and those kind of things are hard for me now because I'll be 62 in March and the, um, the years and years and years of disease has taken a toll on my joints. And that's part of the reason why I don't skate or cycle now is, is because of that. It's really, it's really a, a physical issue. Not that I wouldn't love to, because I've done a great deal of cycling a, a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah, there's great stories in your book about cycling in, in um, France and uh, a, a trip to raise some money, um, yep. Dr- yep. Uh, biking between Ottawa and Toronto. And so yes. that's long bike bike trips like that. It's great. Yeah, we just, yeah. I just remember with, my, with my, our older brother, I would be on the back and we'd, we'd, we lived in a small, near a small village called Sweeberg. So we'd bike into Woodstock, into our, our Oma's house. And that was always a lot of fun, you know, biking all the way into, into Woodstock there was a fond memory. So. Mm-hmm. So your blindness is connected to this condition with the rheumat- this arthritis arthritis. Um, that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, it's uh, um, 
it's sort of a, like a juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, but it, it, it's, uh, like I said, it's a mixed connective tissue disorder. So it affects uh, my organs. Um, <clears throat> it can affect uh, my heart, my kidneys. It could affect my lungs. And in my case, it affected my eyes. And so I was blind by the time I was two and a half from, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, from severe uh, inflammation. And um, so there is a joint component to it. Uh, but in my case, most of the damage initially was to organs, not to my joints. But, uh, you know, over the years, the joints have taken a beating as well. So. And I had a very physical job. I mean, I was a physiotherapist and it's a very physical job. So I did a lot of lifting of patients and um, because I worked in multiple trauma. So I had patients who were in bed and bed to wheelchair and learning to walk and things like that. So I did a lot of lifting. So, you know, it's a, not a good combination a rheumatoid disease and a job where you do a lot of lifting. So it's taken a toll on me, but like I said, I, I, I can't lament. I've had a good time so far. On this show, we do like to talk about um, integration versus uh, school for the blind and things. So I wanted to quickly ask you your thoughts on um, the few years you did go to W. Ross, which she said was Ontario School for the Blind at the time. Um, you know, what was that like? What memories do you have? Do you have like something good to say about it? And, 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 and then something did you have as good? Yeah, what was it like to be to be away from home at that age? And uh, you went home on weekends, but still. Well, I I have to be honest. There are a lot of people who think because I was integrated that I am an integration advocate, and I believe in integration because I think that societally we don't accept things that are not familiar to us. And the only way that blind people can be seen as ordinary people who happen to be blind is to be a lived experience for other people. We just being alongside. So yes, I would advocate for integration, but only for people who are going to be able to live integrated. I think there's a lot to be said for um for a school that is specifically for blind children or for deaf children, I think, you know, or other disabilities. There's a lot to be said for being able to relate to people who have your same sort of story. Um, that there's the support in that there's network. I mean, it was important for me to know Tom Decker, Tom, Tom wanted he and I to start an organization for blind people who are professional people. And we had discussed that quite a bit over the time because it's a very good thing to have a network of one's own, whether it's a group for women or a group for, you know, boy scouts or whatever to have someone you can relate to. So I think being integrated, I lost out on some things. I was a really good athlete, even though I have a rheumatoid disease. Like I said, it mostly affected me viscerally. I was a competitive golfer when I was in school, in physio school in England. I was a competitive tandem marathon cyclist. I probably could have been um, a blind Olympian. I was a very, very good athlete, but I was not connected to any of that because I wasn't connected until I went to the school for blind and visually impaired physiotherapists, you know, when I was finished high school. So I think there's a lot to be said for organizations and schools that can help children and particularly blind children to um, be exposed to a lot of things that require competition with one's own as opposed to integrated competition. I wasn't going to be a competitive athlete against my sighted classmates. That wasn't going to happen. And maybe if it was swimming, which was not my sport, um, but I was, it wasn't going to happen. So I think for integration, for segregation, that's, that's actually a, a plus. But I think also there are a lot of people who are visually impaired. Some of them have other disabilities, whether it's physical disabilities or hearing disabilities or cognitive disabilities as well, that are never going to be able to compete in the world from a career perspective. And so for that reason, 
Do they really need the stress of being integrated? It's tough being integrated. Mm. And it's um, because one competes academically when one is integrated and one competes on, you know, that in other ways. But if a person is not going to be able to be a really completely integrated individual, why would one subject them to that? So that's my thinking. I, I, you know, and I think every child needs the chance, but I think we have to be, you know, honest and, and give people the best opportunity for success within their own parameters. And that isn't necessarily going to be integrated. So for me, the school, what, you know, I didn't belong there. I didn't, I felt I didn't belong there um, because I didn't struggle with things that other blind children struggled with. We had children that couldn't find their way from the dormitory to the dining room on a daily basis, even though it happened three times a day. And so I think um, for me, that was nothing. I you sent me to the place. This is where the dining room is. And I was off. It was never, mobility was never an issue. Orientation was never an issue. So I just, kind of felt like I didn't belong there with those kids. But anyway, I was there for a couple of years and um, an integration, the program came up and some, and I mentioned in the book that somebody said, and it, it passed my ears. So I heard it, although I didn't understand it because I was only eight years old. They said, we will try integration. And if Ruth Vallis can succeed, we can try other blind children. But if Ruth Vallis can succeed, no blind child can succeed. Now, they had a lot of faith in me. Um, obviously, I guess I didn't fit in in their perception either. But my mother didn't like that. She said, that's unfair stress to put on a young child. But I didn't know what it meant. I was eight years old and I was just happy, whatever, whatever. And um, but uh, but the school gave me some connections and the school gave me some confidence because I saw where I stood in the blind world. And uh, that's not a bad thing. I saw what my competition was. Um, and then when I was integrated, then, like I said, there you lose out on things. You lose out on competitive. Well, I did. Maybe people don't now. You make so many, so many great points there because it isn't, it's like every, so many things, pretty much everything in life, I feel, is one size doesn't fit all and everyone's situation is so different and it's a discussion. We have on this show a lot about integration versus uh, segregation at the schools for the blind and it, it, it's a difficult discussion. So it's, it's, it's interesting to, to get your perspectives on that and I, I really appreciate um, everything you have to say. Um, for our listeners who are, have just tuned in or if you've been listening, today we have been speaking with Ruth Vallis author of the book Love is Blind, which you should definitely read, comes highly recommended. And you can find more info on Ruth's website, which is ruthvallis.com. That's Ruth, V-A-L-L-I-S dot com. going to take a quick break now on Outlook, but we'll be right back after these ads with more discussion with Ruth Vallis on her book Love is Blind. Stay tuned. Outlook. Radio Western. Welcome back. We are speaking today with Ruth Vallis, and her book is Love is Blind and uh, 94.9 Radio Western, or as a podcast on all podcast services. Uh, before the break, we were talking about integration versus segregation. Uh, and uh, the one thing I knew from the, I heard from the, segre from the School for the Blind was how, how, how great the food was. Uh, being sarcastic there. Uh, we have a friend who attended um, when we were growing up who always talked about the turkey tetrazzini was not very good. And so. No, no, no. The food was very institutionalized. You mm -hmm. know, I was there in the sixties and it was very institutional food. So it was all, it was all chopped, diced, you know, you never had to use a knife they didn't give you a piece of meat you could cut yourself it was all mm. cut yeah, up I think, for you and, you, and i think that really yeah. ties into like what happens when you when you end up traveling traveling to england to go to, to physiotherapy um school there is these schools for the blind oftentimes we realize that they kind of make things it's like yeah of course we we need to learn how to use a to cut our food at some point or the, the school for the blind in in, in england that you went for physiotherapy, the, the situation where 
you got there and there was no orientation when you arrived and and it's it's just you think about the times but you know it's it's just a really uh interesting thing to to think about yes there uh it was a, a stark difference one was very uh sheltered and the other was throwing me into the lion's den. <laughs> yeah, it was the complete opposite. One was the complete opposite of the other. Yes, there was no orientation. So I had to learn the hard way. And gosh, it was hard. It was hard. Yeah, you, you talk about that in your book. And so, yeah, we're, we're up here to um, when you graduated high school and you went to physiotherapy school in England, which is kind of a groundbreaking place um, for the times and even still you know, reading about that. Uh, I mean, you got as close to being a doctor as any blind person I've known of ever um, with your training. Um, so, yeah, maybe tell us a bit about that school. And like you said, um, it sort of threw you into the, the deep end there. <laughs> uh, but yes. what, a, what a thing to do to leave home like you did and, and, and go on that kind of adventure. Well, yes, I, I really wanted it. I felt very compelled. I always wanted to be in healthcare. I always wanted to work in a hospital since I was a very small child. So when the opportunity came up and I was accepted and I went, uh, it didn't dawn on me exactly what I was getting myself in for. So I uh, flew to London. It was September um, 1981. It was a very hot day in London, unusually so. And I was taken, driven to the school. And somebody gave me a key, showed me where my room was, and that was it. And it was a seven-story building that had two floors of lecture rooms and a library. And then it had a gymnasium. And it had, um, yeah, it was, um, you know, a very large building with different floors for different things. And I needed to know all these things, but they didn't show me anything. So I had to walk around the corridors and read the braille on the doors and figure out what was what and where it was. And, uh, but the school had cooking facilities. We had six, six single bedrooms and a kitchen and a dining room and a sitting room, but you had to cook your own meals. And that had to happen after you bought your groceries and I really didn't know anything about London. I didn't know where any of the shops were. I didn't know how to get to them. I didn't know the names of the brands, of the products to ask for. Uh, it was very, very, very challenging. And um, it just about broke me, but um, I, I, I made it through, fortunately, and uh, learned an awful lot about myself. But they they just figured if you were going to cope as a physiotherapist in a particularly in a hospital environment and it's a hostile environment in a lot of ways people don't want you around if you're blind necessarily uh they they weren't concerned that that I didn't get mollycoddled they wanted me to you know show my stuff so so um <clears throat> It was um, it was enormously challenging, but um, I became very fluent in the language. Although it's supposed to be the same language, it isn't. English and England and Canada are two nations divided by the same language. Yeah. But I became fluent in the language, and I learned my way around, and I learned the products, and I learned everything. But I, I had one big advantage over other students that were there: I could could cook, and I could iron. And I could do laundry and I could sew on a button. And so all the basic domestic skills, I didn't have to learn. I just had to learn where I was and where things were and how I accessed them. So it was a very enormous challenge. I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to go through it again, but I certainly would never have changed it. It was a wonderful career for me was a wonderful opportunity and I've met made friends that I have to this day so it was good and I was I was grateful I was grateful to do it mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so, I mean, everybody check out Love is Blind, Ruth's book, uh, because that whole section where you're at the physiotherapy school in England, it's such an interesting um, thing that most people don't read about. So that's definitely a big part of your book. So you came back after, uh, was it a three-year program? Correct. Right. So then you came back to Toronto and you you tried to get jobs and you worked at several different, or a couple at least, different um, clinics and then, but you wanted to be in a hospital setting, not a clinic. Uh, so what was that like sort of getting into the workforce? Well, actually, I, and I should, I should say to you that when I graduated in 1984, there were 300 blind and visually impaired, mostly visually impaired, not totally blind. Uh, even in my own school of 44 students, only four of us were totally blind when I first started there. So it was mostly visually impaired. And, you know, there's a big difference between having a little bit of vision and not having any. And you know that that's that's there's no two ways about it, especially for mobility and things like that. So um, so uh, I was the only one in my year that was totally blind. And um, so of the 300 visually blind and visually impaired physios worldwide. Most of them are employed in clinics or outpatient departments in hospitals because it's a very controllable environment. Mm -hmm. So it was expected that I would do that. And my professors said, Ruth, when you get back to Canada, open your own clinic and so on. But I didn't want to work in a clinic. My dream from the time I was two years old was to work in a hospital. And there's very few blind people in inpatients in hospitals and especially in big cities, not in Toronto, not in Ottawa, not in Montreal. They're smaller towns, maybe, but mostly still outpatients. So I got the first job I got. I will. I landed a job. They'll read it about it in the book. I landed a job and I was hired and fired without even spending one minute on the job. They hired me. They informed the licensing board that they had hired me. I went on my first day all ready to conquer the world. I walked in. They said, you can't work here. I said, what's happened? What's changed? And they said, no, you can't work here. And they ushered me out. And then through that, they had an employee, another physiotherapist, a gentleman, who felt I was treated very badly, as I was. And so he knew of another clinic that was looking for a therapist. And he told them about me. And they did hire me. And so I worked there, but then a job came up in the hospital and I applied for it and I got the job and it was inpatients and it was my dream job. It absolutely was my dream job. So I worked in rehabilitation and I worked with uh, a couple of groups of patients. I worked with multiple trauma, um, which is people who have had accidents of all sorts, could be motor vehicle accidents, uh, hiking, falling off a cliff, or it could be boating accidents or work-related accidents, or in laterally, it was gunshot wounds. Um, But those kind of people with many, many, many injuries, uh, I would treat and uh, hopefully get them back to enjoying life. I also specialized in people with fractured hips, and in particular, people with fractured hips who had dementia. It's a very hard group uh, to treat. And in fact, I eventually, which is not in the book, um, I eventually worked on a, a task force for the province of Ontario Ministry of Health to develop the standard by which people with fractured hips and particularly with dementia are treated in Ontario. So that was a big deal for me. And then I also worked with people who had uh, complicated total hip and total knee replacements. So I had quite a bit of experience, but my biggest area all my career was multiple trauma. And then I got a special specialist qualification in hydrotherapy to treat patients in water. So I did that as well, which I absolutely loved, 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 loved. It was wonderful. But working in inpatients in a hospital, it's A, very busy. It's B, a lot of equipment all over the place and nothing is in the same place twice. So, you know, you crack your shins on wheelchair legs and stuff like that. But people are very kind to me. And also you have to integrate the charting. You don't get to write your own notes in your own, in your patient's file and just put them in yourself. You have to go and write, like, for instance, the nurse writes something at 10 o'clock. Well, then if I write something at 10, 15, I have to follow on after the nurse. So there's integrated charting. That's very challenging. There's a lot of very visual stuff. And the computers were 
you know, becoming a bigger and bigger part of the workplace. They were not when I started in the 80s, but they were in the end. And the technology was not keeping up. So that was a bit challenging. But I had so much support from my management, from my colleagues. People believed in me and they wanted me to succeed. So they were prepared to do what was necessary. Someone said to me not that long ago, I don't know why people are different with you than they are with other blind people. You really are very fortunate. And I am. People have really been great. But, you know, I tell you the truth. I've worked very hard and I make no excuses. Mm-hmm. No excuses. And that's, uh, you know, whining is, you know, whine into your pillow at night, but don't whine to other people. Just get on with it and do what you have to do. I did. I worked very hard. So uh, very blessed. And I really loved it. Really, really loved it. I treated more than 7,000 people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so great to hear about about that type of stuff, because Carrie and I growing up have had quite a few medical things that we've been that we've had to deal with. And so just have so much respect for people who help out in hospitals and, and nurses and physiotherapists and everyone. And it's just so, so reading about, about all of the, the work that you did and, and just to help others with all of that kind of stuff was, was so, so, uh, so touching for me. So I really appreciate, uh, appreciate everything you've did in your 32 year career as a, uh, as a physiotherapist. Yes, yes. Thank mm-hmm. you. And you retired in 2015. Is that right? Correct. Mm-hmm. I promised my mother I wouldn't Yes, it's, you know, it's, uh, I like I said, I did a lot of lifting. Uh, the patients I treated, when they would come from the acute care hospital to our rehab hospital, they might have been in, in, in ICU for weeks or months. or And some of them, you know, they, they couldn't even sit up or roll over or anything. And so there was a lot of lifting. And it's a very, it's a very emotionally challenging job because, you know, we have to encourage people, make them believe in themselves, make them believe that they can get back to life again, make them believe that, you know, the pain is going to go away and so on. And it's it's a challenging job academically. It's a challenging job emotionally. It's a challenging job physically. And my mother said to me, please don't work any longer than you have to. So I didn't. I could retire in 2015 after a long career and, uh, and uh, I did so. And now I do other things like write a book and write articles and talk to other people like you. So speaking of the book, yes, the book is called Love is Blind. Today on Outlook, we are speaking with Ruth Vallis. And I have to bring this up because this is broadcasting here at, um, on Western Radio out of the University of Western Ontario here in London. And you gave a presentation to a master's degree class studying to be teachers for the blind at Western University. Is that correct? That's correct. In 1986 or seven. Yes. Okay. Because I was curious what year that was, because I just have to read this, this quote from, from your book that you said. You said, if you are teaching your blind children to read and produce Braille, I congratulate you. However, if you are not, then you are a failure as a teacher. And that quote to me just it gets me so emotional because it, it really means so much to me that you said that. And, and somebody, you, you, you mentioned in your book how a man in the back kind of yelled out controversial and yeah. i just that just frustrates me so much cuz i don't understand how that is controversial when braille as you talk about so much in the book is literacy for the blind and without braille you even give the the stats about you know the the amount of people who are hired on jobs that can read braille compared to not being able to read braille so that's just such an important part if you could speak a little bit about that yes oh yes 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 because these were teachers um uh, it was 1987. These these people, yes, they were already teachers and they were specialized in doing a master's degree. And I asked uh, their teacher who had been the principal of the junior school at uh, W. Ross. And she said, I said, what do you want me to speak about? She said, anything that's important to you. So that's what I said. I said, you must, I know at that time, you know, tapes, um, computers make life easier. I know recorded material makes life easier in one, one level, but Braille is literacy for blind people. And if you're not teaching them to read Braille, you fail because if teachers don't encourage literacy, who does? And he said, controversial. I said, controversial, sir, you know, give your head a shake. The fact is when I was born in 1960, uh, 50% of blind people in North America read Braille. Now, 8.5% of blind people read Braille, 8.5%. Now, here is the, t- the statistic 
that is it is so telling. 80% of blind people in North America are unemployed. It's a terrible statistic. But yeah. of but of the 20% that are employed, 80% read Braille. Now, what does that tell you? If only 8.5% of blind people read Braille, but of the 20% who are employed, 80% of them read Braille, there's a very important um, detail. And the detail is the ability to self-learn and to um, continue learning, continuous development, continuous learning. I, there was an article... I think it was in McLean's or it was something was, yeah. And a few years ago, and they were using a woman as an example in Nova Scotia who said she didn't read Braille and she didn't need to read Braille. Well, first of all, she's married to someone who could see, and that's a different um, calculation than for someone like me who is single. But the other thing is, she said, you know, I listen to books on CD or on tape. And I said, yes, and so do I. But I want to select which one I listen to. And that's where Braille comes in. I want to, I label my CDs. I label my, label my, my talking books. I label my stove or my microwave or any number of things. Or I take notes for myself when I'm speaking in public. And I've done a lot of public speaking and I've been a lay preacher in a church. I want to have my notes in front of me in Braille so that I can quickly uh, refer to them and access them. This is this is freedom. It should not be controversial. It, anyway, it should not ever be controversial. It's a human right that everyone ha- deserves it, the right to to literacy. And you also mentioned healthcare in in the book. And that's right. That's right. That's absolutely right. Literacy. People talk about freedom, and they talk about democracy, and I would say literacy is freedom. Because you can read, you can learn, you can expand your mind, you can challenge, you can learn how other people. And interesting enough, you look at a place like Cuba, it doesn't have, doesn't have physical freedom, but they have 100% literacy. Yeah. But look at a place like the United States, which considers themselves a free nation, and they don't even have 90% literacy. So where's the freedom to, you know, uh, to me, that's, that's, you say it's a fundamental, it's a right. Um, it's, it's, it's absolutely, it's absolutely essential. So, uh, the, after the lecture was over, the woman who was teaching it thanked me. She said, Ruth, I couldn't ask you to speak about anything more pertinent than that. And I think you did influence some people. Well, now Braille is becoming popular again, and certainly particularly in Europe, it's really having a nice resurgence and hopefully it'll happen more here, but it should be an expectation. It really should be. For sure. Um, the second half of your book, you talk a lot about your guide dogs. You've had three or four, right? Four? Four. I'm on my fourth, yes. Yep. So uh, you currently have one now then? I have Darwin. He's a bad boy. Very smart. Very naughty. And I love the, I love the connections because your first, so your first dog was, was named Sophie. And, yes. then, and then your second dog was named Ruby. And then just another interesting little connection. So we have a niece named Sophia and our grandma was, was named Ruby. So I just love those little connections that when you're reading a book, oh, there it's you like, go. oh, there this, you go. this connects with me. And yeah, so many, so yes, many things like that. There you, there you go. There you go. Well, you know, and then that's another thing, you know, just like integration and segregation to have a guide dog or to have a cane. Yeah. It all depends on your needs. There's an awful lot to be said for having a cane because you can fold it up and put it away and it doesn't bother you <laughs> and traveling is getting really hard with a guide dog the, stri- the strictness you know people now are having trouble traveling because of covid testing and stuff but the stuff that they have to put the dog through to go traveling and it's getting harder and harder and harder and people are becoming less and less tolerant for whatever reason uh but um but there's a lot to be said for me going downtown every day to work, uh, taking two subways and walking through, you know, walking up University Avenue, such a busy place with hospitals and the University of Toronto, you know, uh, having a dog was really a blessing, really a blessing. You know, this riding the subway in Toronto in rush hour twice a day is really a little challenging with a white cane. It's not impossible, but the dog just makes life that much easier. So again, it's, um, there's a lot to be said for having a dog and, uh, there's, 
those things that no white well, that's, would that's do. another connection that I that I just love too is that so I actually Carrie and I both have had, only had one dog and we got our dogs to help us during high school so we got them um, at 14 years of age so I got my dog for high school but then after high school I was you know an adult and moved out of home and I I moved to Toronto actually for a few years so I could relate to all the subway stops and and things that you mentioned in your book. But it was the opposite for me, where I, I took my dog to Toronto for a bit, but it was just too much. She wasn't, she was trained to go to high school, not to live in a big city like Toronto. So I ended up switching back to the cane um, for the five years I lived in Toronto. But yeah, just another connection that I, th- I thought about. Yes. Yeah. Well, my dogs, um, because I live in a big city, in a busy city, in the subway, my dogs are trained in New York on the subways. Right. Yeah. So that when I come home, then yeah. And you have to have a dog who can handle the stress. That's there's no two ways about it. Even as a person, you have to be able to handle. And in fact, when they came to test me with Darwin this last time to see how I was doing, they said, if you can work this dog in Toronto, you can work this dog anywhere because it's so busy now. And I live just off Bloor Street. I live really in the city and it's, it's challenging. Yeah, I used to be at Bloor and Ossington with my brother, so I know exactly those areas yeah, I mean, so. I, yeah there you go but we are we are running out of time here this has been such a such a fascinating discussion and there's so much more we could talk about carrie i don't know is there any anything else very specific you want to cover here we do have a few more minutes if we want to yeah i mean there's so much uh, get the book love is blind because there's so much and, and having a nice long life there's just so much so many adventures you've been on and so many stories um i did kind of want to end sort of things off a bit with the title Love is blind. We're all kind of familiar with that sort of expression. Um, what is it? What did it mean for you in the context of your book, and and why you chose that as your title? Is is it based around your mother and your your deep connection with her, or is it broader? Well, my my teacher, who has been my friend and is to this day, she's an elderly woman now. Um, she she said to me when I was in her class in grade eight, she she said, "You've had." quite an interesting life already, even at 13 years of age, when you are older, you should write a book and call it Love is Blind. And I, as I wrote the book, I thought increasingly it is really the right title for me because when one loves someone or as people have loved me and encouraged me, uh, they've been blind to the fact that I'm blind. They have allowed me to be myself. They've had expectations of me. They have encouraged me um, to do everything I possibly can. And I think I think that's the thing. I mean, love can be blind to people's faults, but also love can be blind rather than have putting limitations on people or having um, feeling that people are inadequate or have can't do something, being blind to all that and just just uh, um, allowing me to be myself. And it's, that was certainly my mother, that was certainly my brothers, that was certainly my colleagues, uh, my friends at church. That's been people everywhere, really have been really, really ignoring my blindness and just saying, you know, go get it, be what you are, be the person you are, do what you can do. And uh, it's very, it's very freeing, very free. Mm-hmm. And as I said, this book is based a lot around your relationship with your mother, who who was called Peach. And yes. uh, so that's a lovely part of this book, the sort of through line through the book, um, that everybody pick up Love is Blind and check it out, uh, get it where, all, where you go to get books anywhere. Um, Brian and I read it in Braille, <laughs> speaking of Braille. So. Yes, Braille displays read- here. And uh, I'm actually using my Braille mm-hmm. display today as well for notes. So always using it every day. It's wonderful. 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 Well, and it's, it's available, you know, it's available. It's, it, there's accessible download from Friesen, which is F-R-I-E-S-E-N, Friesen Press. And it's, um, yes, and it's available, you know, Google Play and all those kind of things. If people want to read it, uh, di- you know, digitally, it's available on those. And uh, it's on list. It's at uh, N-N-E-L-S. Um, waiting, oh, good. Be, waiting to be recorded. Yes. Oh, great. Great. Awesome. All right. Well, well. I'm, I'm so glad you reached out, Ruth, and uh, I'm so glad I had the ch- we got the chance to read your book, and we will recommend it to other people. And I uh, hope the listeners learned a bit more about you today. But there's a lot more in the book, so pick up the book. There's so much in there. 
That's great. Thank you. I appreciate it. I did reach out, but you reached back and that's the key. Thank you. Yeah. Making connections is what I, what we believe in here on Outlook. So what it's all about. And you talked, you talked earlier about blind people, you know, not being, um, if you're integrated, you don't always make those same connections, but at least today with social media and all these other avenues, I think it is easier. And we just need to work on that more and more in Canada to have the blind community really working with each other and connecting. So really great discussion today. And, uh, I appreciate it so much. And Definitely check out Love is Blind by, by Ruth Vallis and uh, best of luck in the future. And maybe we'll have you on again someday. We'd love to chat. More. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks. for kindly. Send us an email. Outlook on Radio Western at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at Outlook CFB. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlook on Radio Western.